O God, whom I praise, do not remain silent, for wicked and deceitful men have opened their mouths against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongues. With words of hatred they surround me. They attack me without cause. In return for my friendship, they accuse me. But I am a man of prayer. They repay me evil for good and hatred for friendship. Appoint an evil man to oppose him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him be found guilty. And may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another leader, may another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off, their names blotted out from the next generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May may their sins always remain before the Lord, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he never thought of doing a kindness, but hounded to death the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted. He loved to pronounce a curse. May it come on, may it come on him. He found no pleasure in blessing. May it be far from him. He wore cursing as his garment. It entered into his body like water, into his bones like oil. May it be like a cloak wrapped about him like a belt tied forever round him. May this be the Lord's payment to my accusers, to those who speak evil of me. But you, O sovereign Lord, deal well with me for your name's sake. Out of the goodness of your love, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I fade away like an evening shadow. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees give way from fasting. My body is thin and gaunt. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they shake their heads. Help me, O Lord, my God. Save me in accordance with your love. Let them know that it is your hand, that you, O Lord, have done it. They may curse, but you will bless. When they attack, they will be put to shame but your servant will rejoice. My accusers will be clothed with disgrace and wrapped in shame as in a cloak. With my mouth, I will greatly extol the Lord. In the great throng, I will praise him. For he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save his life from those who condemn him. This is God's word. The reading shall continue from Acts 1, verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about a hundred and twenty, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus.
He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language a keldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. This is God's word. Father, we thank you for the Psalms and the way in which they teach us how to pray. Please help us as we learn to pray this unfamiliar Psalm in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's your best thing about God just at the moment? It's a good question to ask one another on a Sunday. What's your best thing? I'll tell you what mine is, and it's at the end of the psalm. The last two verses of the psalm sum it up. So verse 30, with my mouth I'll greatly extol the Lord in the great throng. That's the assembly, that's church. I will praise him. I'm going to tell you what's brilliant about God. Here it is, verse 31. He stands at the right hand of the needy one. That's the one who trusts him. The poor and needy one, the dependent one, the believer. He stands at their right hand to save his life from those who would condemn him. Now, the the standing at the right hand thing, its uh, the nearest we get to it in normal life is an appraisal. I'm guessing that a a number of us here have an appraisal. You have an appraisal perhaps once a year at work, and uh, the, the person appraising you may not stand at your right hand, but that's the idea. So you've got the person standing at your right hand is doing an appraisal. Think of an appraisal with teeth. An appraisal on steroids, an appraisal where you're in the dock, an appraisal where the stakes are not just uh, pay rise or redundancy, but the stakes are life or death. And the one on your right hand is the one who is going to accuse you or to vindicate you. Condemnation or vindication. That's what the psalm is about. And where we're going to end is by praising God that he's the one who stands at the right hand and vindicates against those who would condemn. But we've got a journey to, to travel to get there. So let's, let's launch into the psalm. And there are some tricky bits in it. We'll, we'll pause and look at them on the way through. But let's launch in. The first five verses give us prayer in crisis. We don't know exactly what's going on, but you can, you can sense the crisis. Oh God, whom I praise, verse one, don't remain silent because, verse two, there's a whole bunch of people who are anything but silent. 
God seems to be silent, but verse 2, there's a whole bunch of people who in their character are wicked, in their methods are deceitful, and they have opened their mouths against me. They're, as it were, standing at my right hand. They are accusing me uh, deceitfully. They're false witnesses. They hate me. That's their motive, verse 3. Words of hatred. They surround me. They attack me without cause because I've been a friend to them, verse 4. In return for my friendship, they accuse me. I'm a man of prayer, which probably means I pray for them. I've done them nothing but good. I've befriended them. I've been kind to them. I've prayed for them. And they repay me, verse 5, evil for good and hatred for friendship. We don't know exactly what prompted this in David's life. There were a number of times in David's life when people to whom David had been kind and loyal treated him badly. It could be any of those. It doesn't really matter. But it's a prayer in crisis. A whole bunch of people accusing him, speaking deceitfully, false witness against him, endangering his life. And he says to God, oh, please, will you speak? Please, will you do something to vindicate me? Please rescue me. Now, after that, in verses 6 through 20, David prays against Well, mostly he prays against the ringleader, the individual who seems to be the ringleader of his accusers, uh, verses 6 through 19, and then verse 20, he he prays against them all. Then in verses 20, now verses 6 through for himself, before ending with praise. Now verses 6 through 20 are difficult for us. This is the third in a little series in three Psalms, 107, 108, 109. And the advantage of working through the Bible systematically as we do here at Christ Church Mayfair is that it forces us to tackle the difficult bits. And this is a difficult bit, verses 6 to, to 20. Because on the face of it, you read verses 6 to 20 where he, he prays, and let, let me caricature it. Imagine you're, you're, you're saying your prayers. You're kneeling by your bedside in a pious kind of way saying your prayers. And you're saying something like this. Dear God, um, one of my colleagues at work is treating me badly. Um, Please could you make sure he dies soon and that his children are wandering beggars. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) And you think, it just feels slightly awkward about that. I'm just (laughs) uncertain as to whether that's the kind of prayer that a Christian should pray. Okay, let's have, let's have a look at this and see where we, where we go. I want to um, suggest to us, first of all, some reasons why we can't just ignore it. So if you've, if you've come across this kind of thing in, in, in the Bible, you'll know that sometimes people take the easy way out, which is that they say, Um, okay, this is a nasty bit, this is sub-Christian, we'll ignore this. You may know that C.S. Lewis did that in one of his less good books. He wrote some cracking good books, but his book on the Psalms is one of the less good ones. And he said, no, no, it's sub-Christian, we'll just ignore that bit. Here's five reasons why that won't do, just, just before we launch into this. First of all, it's a wider problem than just one or two Psalms. This is one of the strongest ones. Psalm 69 is another really strong one. But actually, if you read through the Psalms, you find a number of places where there's a prayer for God to curse the wicked. It's dotted much more widely through the Psalms, and not just the Psalms. Jeremiah, great prophet Jeremiah, 
in chapter 18, prays something very similar, that God would punish his enemies. So it's a wider problem. Second reason, it won't do just to say Old Testament nasty, New Testament nice. People often say that, don't they? Oh, that's Old Testament. It's Old Testament's nasty, but we're New Testament. New Testament is nice. A careful reading of the Old and New Testaments shows that you can't do that with integrity. Where does love your neighbor as yourself come from? The Old Testament. Where does if your enemy is hungry, feed him come from? The Old Testament. Where does if anyone doesn't love the Lord, let him be accursed come from? The New Testament. You read the Old and New Testaments carefully and you find the problem goes right through both of them. So you can't just do Old Testament bad, New Testament good. Third reason, either the Psalms teach us how to pray or they don't. If we're going to pick and choose which bits of the Psalms teach us to pray, we might as well use the poems of Robert Frost to teach us to pray. I mean, I can read the poems of Robert Frost. There are some nice bits in them and I'll pick the nice bits And I'll pray, you know, use them to inspire my prayers. But I'm deciding what to pray. Nobody's teaching me. Either the prayers teach us what to pray or they don't. Picking and choosing doesn't really work. Fourth reason, Christian history strongly suggests that the people of God over the centuries have prayed the Psalms. And when they've prayed the Psalms, they've prayed the Psalms. So they've grappled with all of the Psalms. And fifth reason, there's a particular problem with this Psalm which is that one of the nasty bits is explicitly told, we're explicitly told in the New Testament, our second reading, that it is a prophecy inspired by the Holy Spirit. Did you notice that in the the reading in Acts? May another take his place of leadership? That's in the middle of the nasty bit. And that's explicitly, we're explicitly told that's a prophecy of the Holy Spirit. So for those reasons, we need to, to grapple with this, and I want to try to help us to do that, because it's not easy. And we do struggle with it. I want us to notice first, in verses 6, 7, and 8, that it's a prayer. So verse 6, it's a prayer. He says to God, appoint an evil man to oppose him, an accuser or a Satan, to stand at his right hand. That's what Satan means, an accuser, an adversary. When he's tried, let him be found guilty. May his prayers condemn him, his days be few, and so on. It's a prayer. And the thing about a prayer is that a prayer is not personal revenge. God says in the Old Testament, vengeance is mine. I will repay, Deuteronomy 32. Don't you take revenge. I will deal with that because I will deal with it properly and you won't. So it's a prayer. And David himself, in his life, consistently refused to take personal revenge. Twice, Saul, who was trying to kill him and treating him very badly, David said, no, no, I'm not going to take revenge. I'm not going to take the law into my own hands. I'm going to pray. Second, I want us to notice the seriousness of it. Verse 8, may another take his place of Leadership. This is a prayer of David, and it concerns somebody who was in leadership. So this is not just a personal issue. If you trust me with something and I betray you, it's bad, I shouldn't do it, and it may mess up your life, but it probably won't do anything much bigger than that. 
But this is not that kind of thing. This is treason against the king. This is against David the king. So it's more like, rather than me letting you down, this is more like Kim Philby. Kim Philby, who was head of British counterintelligence for a long period in the Cold War, and for 20 years made sure that the Soviet Union knew everything that British and, for the most part, American intelligence knew. Countless loyal agents went to their death. The um, the, the security of the nation was endangered by his actions. Treason. That's what this is. This is one in leadership betraying the king. It's a much, much bigger thing than a personal issue between such as might be between you and me. It's a really, really big thing, this. So notice the seriousness. Third, and you may well want to talk about verses 9 to 15, the family bit. And you may well want to talk to me about this this afterwards, because I'm just conscious This is the bit we find really difficult. Verses 9 to to 15. I want his children, verse 9, to be fatherless because he dies, his wife to be a widow because he dies. I want his children to be wandering beggars, driven away, verse 10. I want all his property to be be lost, verse 11, bankrupted, the whole family. I want there to be no kindness or pity on his fatherless children. I want his family to be cut off, verse 13, names blotted out, and the sin, this dreadful sin in the family to, 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 to cause the whole um, lot to be wiped off the face of the earth. And we think, because we're incorrigible individualists, that's very unfair. That's the bit we struggle with, isn't it? We, we, we think, okay, if somebody's done something terrible, a Kim Philby, they deserve to be punished. That's bad. But what about the family? Isn't there something rather nasty and vindictive about that? Now, I just want to give us one or two pointers to help us think about this, because you get it elsewhere in the Bible, and we need to to think about this. We are incorrigible individualists, most of us, in our culture. We we think we we exist as free-floating individuals making our own decisions. And what we need to take seriously is corporate solidarity, The fact that the assumption is that members of a family or a loyalty group or a friendship group or a people group, the default position is to share the values of the group. So the default understanding is that the members of this traitor's family will share something of the characteristic of their father. That's the default understanding. It's not inevitable But that's the natural understanding. That is how we work. We naturally share the values of the corporate bodies to which we belong, whether it be family, culture, friendship group, whatever it may be. We naturally share that. So what David is praying in verses 9 to 15 is is, is that he's really saying the evil represented by this traitor is such a terrible thing. It's like a terrible virus. And it needs to be wiped off the face of the earth, which is why he prays against the whole family. And the Bible often has that sort of thing about Edomites or Moabites or Amalekites, all sorts of um, people groups. And and they're, they're described as wicked and they're prayed against because they're wicked. And when we read that, we need to say, this is... 
This is saying the corporate solidarity of a bunch of people. If that is wicked, then that's got to be removed. But when you read that in the Bible, remember the glorious exceptions. Remember Ruth the Moabitess, who belonged to a wicked people, but broke away from that corporate solidarity. Remember that that glorious exception by grace is always possible. And that the the general prayer that this traitor's family will be wiped off the face of the earth is in the context of the Bible understanding that there may be some descendants of this traitor who by grace break away later. But that family thing is, is important. Next, I want us to notice from verses 16 to 19 that there is an appropriateness about this. You see the, the verse 16, he, this traitor, this fellow leader with David who betrayed him, he never thought of doing a kindness, showing covenant loyalty and love. David had shown it to him, but he wouldn't show it to anybody. He hounded to death vulnerable people, poor, needy, broken-hearted people. That's what he did. He, he loved to curse people. And so it's appropriate, verse 17, that his curse comes back onto him. He never blessed people, and so it's appropriate that no blessing comes on him. He wore cursing, verse 18, like a, his clothing, and it entered into him like water or oil. It's what he loved, it's what he became, like a cloak, verse 19, or a belt. That's what they, it, that came to define his character as a man who cursed and didn't bless. And so there is an appropriateness and a justice about what David prays. Next, I want us to notice from verse 20 that David is praying something which is in line with the revealed will of God. To verse 20, may this be the Lord's payment to my accusers, to those who speak evil of me. Now, here's the thing. When God gives a covenant to Abraham in Genesis 12. Part of the way a covenant works is, I'm going to make a covenant with you, he says, and part of the deal is, people who bless you, I'm going to bless, and people who curse you, I'm going to curse. That's the beginning of Genesis 12. That's how covenants work. I'm committed to you. People who bless you are going to be friends of mine. People who curse you are going to be enemies of mine. That's how a covenant works. And what David is saying as the king, he's saying, I'm in covenant with God. And if people bless me, they're loyal to me, God will bless them. And if people curse me, I'm going to pray that God does what he says he will do, which is to be against them. So he's praying, and he's praying according to God's will. It's strong stuff, and it's difficult stuff for it. Uh, us, but actually there's something right about it. Verses 21 to 29, he prays for himself. He says, you, O sovereign Lord, deal well with me. He's prayed against his enemy, his Satan, his accuser, and he says, deal well with me for your name's sake. So notice his motive. He's not saying, I want the enemy to be beaten up because I'm vindictive. He's saying, I want the enemy to be destroyed and I want me to be rescued for your name's sake, your reputation, so that people will know that you're a God who keeps your promises. 
because I'm very, very weak, he says. Verse 22, I'm poor, I'm needy, I'm broken-hearted. Verse 22, my heart is wounded, I'm fading away. Verse 23, shaken off like a locust, just, I'm, there's so little of me, you can just flick me away like you would an insect. My knees give way, I'm so weak, I'm thin and gaunt, I'm scorned. Verse 25, help me. Verse 27, 26, it's very urgent and very extreme. Verse 27, let them know that it's you who've done this, that it's you who've rescued me. When I'm rescued, I want them to see that you're a God who keeps your promises. They may curse, but you will bless. They'll attack, uh, they'll be put to shame, but I'll rejoice your servant. And they'll be clothed in disgrace, and so on. Now, We need to ask the question, who can pray this prayer? I caricatured it earlier on and said, you and I feel that we can't just say, um, please, will you kill the person who's treating me badly in the office and make their children wandering beggars? And we laughed because it was so obviously absurd. But the question is, who can pray this? And the question is, who is so important that treachery to him threatens the kingdom, threatens the government of the world, who is so innocent and righteous that he treats his accuser, his traitor, his betrayer with friendship and love and cares for him, who is so pure in his motives that he prays for your namesake, for your reputation, please rescue me and please destroy the wicked. Here are some words I found really helpful from the German Lutheran pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He, he's, he's written very perceptively on the Psalms and he says, when you're reading the Psalms and you're trying to pray a Psalm and you get to a bit in a Psalm that you find really difficult to pray which happens not infrequently. He says, a psalm we can't utter as a prayer that makes us falter and horrifies us is a hymn who is here that someone else is praying, that the one who is here protesting his innocence, who is invoking God's judgment, who has come to such infinite depths of suffering, is none other than Jesus Christ. Christ himself. He it is who is praying here. He's praying the Psalms through the mouth of his church. And Bonhoeffer is right on the money there. And when you read in Acts chapter 1 that this is a prophecy of the Holy Spirit, may another take his place of leadership, verse 8. And, 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 and we're told in Acts chapter 1 it's a prophecy of the Holy Spirit about Judas Iscariot. And then you begin to see That what you have here in this psalm is the voice of Christ. The voice of the one who, to whom treachery threatens the kingdom, threatens the government of the universe. The, The voice of the one who is loving and righteous. The voice of the one who is falsely accused and betrayed and accused by false witnesses. And it is he who prays this. And he's the only one who can, in a sense, pray this with pure motives. You and I struggle. We rightly say it's really difficult to pray this if there's somebody treating me badly because I know that they'll mixed in with 
maybe some good stuff in my motives, there'll be vindictiveness. Please let them let him have it, Lord. You know, and you, you rightly think, hey, wait a minute, that's not right. There's something wrong about that. And there's only one person who can pray this kind of thing with pure motives. Now, there's still a problem, though, isn't there? Because people, we find ourselves saying, hang on a minute, um, you think you've solved the problem by saying Jesus prays the psalm. But surely Jesus is the one who, as they nailed him to the cross, prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Isn't he the one whose first martyr Stephen prayed as they stoned him, Lord, don't hold this sin against them? Isn't he the one who taught us in the Sermon on the Mount to pray for those who persecute us? Yes, it is. But here's the thing, and this is a really sobering thought. The Lord Jesus did pray for those who crucified him because they didn't know what they were doing. But he never prayed for Judas Iscariot. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? He loved him, he was kind to him, he was considerate to him, but he didn't pray for him, he just said, go, go and do it, go and do it, you're determined to do it, Satan has entered into you, John chapter 13. And and, and what this is about is this, there is such a thing as hardened wickedness. There is such a thing as a wickedness which Jesus elsewhere calls the sin or the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, what John calls in his first letter mortal sin or sin that leads to death. There is such a thing as a hardening of the human heart from which there will be no repentance. And against that hardened wickedness and evil... The Lord Jesus prays that the justice and judgment of God will fall. Because if it doesn't, there will never be heaven. If it doesn't, the new heavens and the new earth will never be a perfect place. It is necessary and right and good that hardened evil be destroyed from the face of the earth. And that's what this is about. So friends, if if we're... Christian people, we can and must pray this psalm in Christ. Christ is the only one who can lead in the praying of this psalm. He's the only one who can, 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 can pray against hardened evil with pure motives. Our problem is that our motives are mixed and that we recognize the seeds of a Judas Iscariot in ourselves. That's our problem. The line between good and evil goes straight down the middle of a human heart. That's our problem. And yet in Christ, we can join in the saying, the singing, the praying of a psalm like this. And we can, as the Lord Jesus leads us, pray. And this is a wonderful thing for the persecuted church. You think of our brothers and sisters in parts of the world suffering vicious persecution. What do they pray? Here is a psalm to pray. Here is a psalm to pray as we remember that we're led in our psalm, in our prayers by the 
one who was betrayed by one of his closest associates, who stood at his right hand, as it were, like a Satan, like an accuser, a false witness, and betrayed him. And who rejoiced at the end of the psalm, as David does, in verse 31, that God stands at the right hand of the needy one to save his life from those who would condemn him. And it is a wonderful thing in Christ to say this. You and I may get nervous about appraisals in our job. But when you think about the appraisal with teeth, you think about the appraisal to assess our life, And on our right hand, there is an accuser, a Satan, who points the finger and says, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're rotten, you're just a miserable mess morally. And he points the finger and says, you deserve to die. What a glorious thing it is. To say with verse 31 that God stands at our right hand. God destroys the accuser, the Satan. And those who represent him on earth as Judas Iscariot did. Those in whose hearts there is hardened evil. What a wonderful thing for persecuted Christians. To rejoice in verse 31 that God is the one who stands at the right hand of the poor, the needy, the one who trusts in him, the man or woman who believes and trusts and entrusts their life and their destiny to him. He stands at their right hand to save the life from those who would condemn him. That is gospel. That is wonderful truth. And I want to encourage us, although we we rightly say we can't pray the difficult bits just as isolated individuals because our motives are all mixed. I want us to say, yes, in Christ we can join in his prayer that the day will come when Satan and everyone who represents Satan with hardened evil and hostility to the people of God will be destroyed from the earth. And that is good news. And I would encourage us to be on the front foot about not be embarrassed about that and to say that is really good news. That is something to cheer about. That is something, as verse 30 says, to praise God about in the assembly and to say this is a really brilliant thing about God that he does that. Condemnation or vindication. What a wonderful thing it was for the Lord Jesus falsely accused, betrayed by Judas Iscariot. What a wonderful thing it was that in the end his heavenly father, as it were, stood at his right hand and vindicated him on resurrection morning, on Easter morning. What a wonderful thing it was that he did that. What a wonderful thing it was that that prophecy, that prayer, let another take his place of leadership, that that is exactly what happened to Judas Iscariot. And what a wonderful thing it is to know that the one whom Judas Iscariot represented, the Satan, the accuser, will one day be destroyed and removed from the earth. That is good news. Really, really good news in which to rejoice. Let's be quiet for a moment and I'll uh, pray.
In the great throng I will praise him, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save his life from those who condemn him. God, our Father, we praise and thank you for that. We thank you that you did that for the Lord Jesus, your righteous, falsely accused, betrayed son. And we pray that as believers in him, we too may trust that you stand at at our right hand, not to accuse, not to condemn, but to vindicate and to rescue. And we pray that when we and our brothers and sisters all over the world face suffering, face being badly treated because we are followers of Jesus, we pray that this might put joy and confidence into our hearts. In his name. Amen.